As you see before you, the subject this morning is going to be kindness. That may not be the... Actually, Judy liked this graphic better for some reason because of all the pink. And really, that's probably more scripturally accurate as far as be kind to one another is the idea. Uh, I just couldn't bring myself to put anything that pink up here. Would never want to do that. But anyway, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I would like you to turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4 and see if we can go through and read this. This is another one of those lists that I just love so much with all these words in it. We've probably talked about this before. But I, I was sitting listening to somebody else talk the other day, and they referred to this verse. And so when I read it and began to look up what was there, a couple of ideas struck me that I really hadn't thought of in this way before. Uh, just what is kindness? I think, and, and that's really the simple point I want to make, although we're going to look at a lot of different things and words this morning. I want to make a simple point with you about what kindness actually is, because I think it's not what we really think it is sometimes. And we associate it more with a feeling than what it really is. And I think that's going to be clear, not from the definition, but also from the words. But let's go back and read here. And this is in the middle of a long context, one of the, ni- one of the better parts of the New Testament as far as putting things together. Paul is transitioning from the first part of the book of Ephesians, which is about uh, the salvation we have in Christ and all the blessings we enjoy to the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, we're about that now, now that we're in Christ, how should we live? He's transitioning here in these verses, and there's a lot of different admonitions found here. But he says this, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there's so much there to unpack, but I, I'm going to do one of the things that and Stacey's not here this morning. She couldn't be here, but I'm, I'm, maybe I'm glad she's not because she hates these, she says, as me going through words and de- defining words and so forth. But I have to tell you, one of the biggest battles that we're fighting with in our entire culture and even in churches is the definition of words and the continual changing of the definition of words as a moving target. And therefore, we can't communicate with one another. Even if we want to communicate, we can't communicate because we don't agree on definitions. And we think when someone's saying this word, they mean that, but they don't mean that. They've got a new definition that they're applying to that word. And so we have a trouble communicating. I think a lot of that's intentional. And, but I, but I do remember my professor that I had most of my college Bible courses with, Melvin Curry, and then we've become friends and colleagues since that time. He, he told me many years ago in a conversation, he said, what you got to watch for, Mike, as you grow older, is they're going to be changing the Greek lexicons. The more progressive Christians in charge of the universities are going to be changing the Greek lexicons to make them mean what they want them to mean. And so you see it happening before you. I'm glad that the old ones like Vines and Strongs and Trenches and Robertson's uh, New Testament, I'm glad those are still available to you because they're going to be altering these definitions. And so, Paul, if we look at these words or these two passages, the first thing you're going to notice is that these two passages here are really 
contrasted with one another. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away. That's really should be, but be kind to one another. Or instead of that, do this. That's a contrast. So instead of this, do this. And so it's telling me as a human being and a, uh, as a Christian, I certainly would have a tendency, or probably I'm already practicing the first. That's the natural course of action in human be- human society among human beings, as we'll see in a moment. The, the verse 31 of bitterness, wrath, anger, evil speaking, and malice. But he says you, you as a Christian must put that away and stop living like that. That, I don't know how much plainer he can be. Stop doing that. It's, even if it's your tendency, propensity, even if you say you're born that way or whatever. You know, the women wear the t-shirts, well, I'm just emotional. Well, you know, there's a point which you need to get over that. Grow up and get over that. Babies are emotional too. And being emotional is not an excuse for you to do whatever you want and say whatever you want because you're an emotional person. Men just slap people around and say, well, that's just me. I'm just a, I'm just an angry man. Okay. Time to get over that. And we need to think about this way we excuse our behavior. But in contrast to the first, he says, you be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgive each other as God forgave you. Now, each of those three words, kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, means something a little different than you think. Maybe I should have put all three of them together because we'll talk about that if we have time this morning. They all mean something a little bit different than you might think. And there, a couple of them are not even the same words used in other parts of the Bible, like the one for forgiveness. It's not the same word for forgive that's used in the other parts of the Bible. It's a different meaning, which I think has some uh, bearing on what we do. Now, let's just take a look at these words. I'll try not to be too boring. But once again, we have to know what the words mean. What's bitterness? Well, in Greek, it's pikros. It's it's picking. A, a pick, to, the root meaning is to cut something or to prick it. We use the English word prick or to cut something. It means sharp. And you can see the word pick even sounds sharp, doesn't it? And that's the way it was in Greek. It's probably an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it is. Keen, pungent to the sense of the of, t- of taste, smell, etc. And so, here we have bitterness. It's something that causes us, when we see bitterness in someone and their remarks, it causes us to be repelled. It's sharp. It's pungent. And it makes us back up. And I think that's the purpose of people's bitterness. It is to get advantage over you in a conversation or in a relationship. Take advantage of your uh, being caught off guard by this bitter attitude or these bitter words and gives them the advantage and, and throws you off because it is show, so keen to the sense, senses and smell. Now that's used in a little, most words that have a metaphorical meaning like bitterness really have an actual concrete beginning or definitionally they began as something concrete, something that makes you, uh, something literally that's pungent to the smell and so forth and so bitter and you can smell that. And, and But in Ephesians 4.31, the lexicons say, at least one of them says, that it means bitter hatred is really the context of what it means, the way it's used in other places of, in similar contexts in Greek literature. It means bitter hatred. Well, bitterness and hatred really do go together. 
And when we see this kind of thing, he says, you put this away. What kind of person is, what is bitterness? What kind of person is this? Well, it's one that, as I say, in reality, tries to get you to back away from them and their positions and, and even criticism of them by being harsh toward you and sharp. And so you're kind of afraid to approach them. You do it this way on purpose. It makes you, makes you, you kind of get people afraid to approach you because they're afraid they're going to get, you know, verbally smacked around or, or insulted, taken advantage of some way. And, and you probably have people like this in your family or work. They kind of subtly keep their, di- people have to keep their distance because you never know what you're going to get when that person's around. And it usually involves bitterness and it's a form of hatred. It's a form of, of not trying to uh, properly associate with people. Now we can all become bitter in the sense that we have things that disappoint us. I don't even think that this bitterness here is the bitterness that comes with just prolonged disappointment of something. It's possible. But disappointment can lead to bitterness of spirit, which causes you to lash out at other people and be prickly as it was. People say, oh, he's prickly. Well, is that some kind of compliment you're giving the person just because you changed the word prickly? What does that mean? It means unfriendly, unapproachable. I'll tell you what, an elder of the Lord is easy to be entreated, according to Paul's definition of the qualifications of elders. One of the qualifications of elders, he is easy to be entreated, means he's approachable, and you can talk to him about things without being afraid. It's hard to do that, but that's the opposite of bitterness, where you're sharp and you mean to keep people at a distance from you. We need to avoid this in our lives. We need to be the kind of people that are easy to be entreated. Now, let's move on a little bit, because we have this these words wrath and anger. These are even more uh, bigger in their usage in the New Testament. Both of these words are used repeatedly in the New Testament, sometimes together, sometimes apart, and there's this debate among uh, scholars as to what their relationship is. Sometimes they mean the same thing, and they're kind of used interchangeably, wrath and anger, and sometimes it's obvious the way they're used they mean something a little different. It's kind of like the words phileo to love and agape in Greek to love. Most of the time they're interchangeable in the way the Greeks use them and the way they're in the Bible. But sometimes, for example, in, in John 21, it appears that they are meant to be a little bit different. Jesus asked Peter, do you agape, do you love me? And he answers back, uh, I phileo you. He, he's answering in a different word on purpose. Now we can debate the meaning of that. But it's obvious there's a difference. But wrath and anger are similar things. I don't think we would make too much distinction in English between wrath and anger, although there is a difference in the way they're used. Thymos and thyme, it probably is related to the, the plant thyme, most likely, which is a kind of an herb and so forth. But it's a passionate response, as if breathing hard is the basic definition, fierceness, indignation, wrath, passion, angry, heat, anger forthwith boiling up and soon subsiding again. So it came to me, this kind of anger that just whoosh, boils up and and spills out and then it goes away quickly. That's kind of the way I am in my anger. It boils up quickly and it goes away. So I'll Years ago, more maybe so than now, I'll get I'd get angry about something and boil over, and Judy and the rest of the family is walking on eggshells, and I'm like, "What's going on? What's wrong with you people?" Well, you're angry. I'm angry. I didn't know I was angry. Well, you said this. Oh, that was that was an hour ago. What are you talking about? 
I'm fine. This is why I found out that when my children disobeyed flagrantly, I had to punish them right then. Because in half an hour, I was fine making excuses for them. Well, they didn't mean it. They're a nice kid. And I, was, I never would do anything, and I still am kind of like that. But I had to act when, I'm, when my, my passion was there. So passion is the same as anger. And there's a big debate in the Greek world, ancient world, Plato and Aristotle about the passions. And in Hinduism, the passions is Gandhi's idea in Hinduism is uh, that if you can get rid of all passion, in other words, stop caring about everything, then life will be better. Just stop caring. This is nirvana, to reach a state of in total indifference to everything. Because passion is what causes the problems. The Greeks recognized this too, as well as, as, as Solomon in the Old Testament, that passion is often the, 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 the catalyst for so much human misery and problems. Boil over with anger or other pa- sexual passions, other things. And so wrath has this meaning of, uh, of heat burning that boils up in you. And uh, he says that kind of negative passion, that kind of negative anger needs to be put away. This boiling over suddenly at every provocation is what we often call a bad temper. That's one kind of bad temper. That's one kind of bad temper. He says the Christian cannot be the kind of person who boils over uncontrollably because James put it this way. The, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. That's what he means by that. This boiling over of man's passions uncontrollably when he gets upset about something or when he sees something he wants is uh, not good. Now, now then you have Timos, uh, the say would say refers to turbulent commotion, the boiling agitation of the feelings. A lot of people spend their half their day on the internet and on Instagram and so forth, boiling over with their passions. Boiling over uncontrollably about everything that goes on. It isn't just a reason discourse. It it, it how often do you see things start off innocent and they just immediately boom there's all this passion and viciousness going on. We'll come to that word too. Basil the Great called, I didn't even know Basil was great, but this is Basil the Great called Timos, an inebriation of the soul. What's inebriation? Well, it's a drunkenness of the soul. It's someone who is uh, drunken. They're not in control of their passions that will either subside and disappear or else settle down into orge, which is anger, which is more often an abiding and settled habit of mind and enduring anger that is focused on revenge. So here are the two. The boiling up of passions that often quickly subsides, maybe goes away completely, but you've caused damage when you've done this, you've exploded, you've said things, done things that you probably regret, possibly, and then you have to defend them, and that makes it worse, and you get mad when people confront you on this, and it just keeps going. And the other one, orge, means an abiding, settled hostility or resentment of mind that is seeking revenge oftentimes. You know, the old thing of uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, what is the, what's the real emotion behind revenge? Isn't it anger or wrath? That's the real emotion back there is this anger. And we see this so often among people that we know. And when you meet these people that, I don't meet them, but you hear these people that just walk into an office building or a 7-Eleven and shoot the place up, and they go interview the neighbors. 
What do the neighbors always say? It's like they got the same people on there every time. Oh, it's such a nice fellow, caused no problem. Real quiet. Say to himself, real quiet, nice fellow. Can't understand why he blew up a whole apartment building, killed all these children. I can tell you why. Anger, wrath turned into a settled resentment that sought revenge. Same thing with the kids that shoot up the schools. It isn't a psychological condition that's a disease. He calls it here immorality is the idea. It's where you let the emotions settle into the heart and over time they begin to just percolate there and they bring about a cold, oftentimes a cold, calculated revenge. And you see this with these kinds. You see this in serial killers. You see this in the kinds of people that make the news for these other events. You're seeing what the Bible here calls wrath and anger. Now those are extreme cases. You, you have people in churches who have a general disposition of anger a settled kind of resentment over some grievance that they perceive against someone or something in the church or their neighbors or their spouse or some issue, some person, some political issue, and you see this settled anger that sits there and formulates a plan to get even or to take exact some kind of revenge. And this is what he says is the problem. The Greeks recognize humans haven't changed at all in thousands of years. It's the same problem. It's not something new. The idea of people shooting up office buildings, we may have better weapons a way to do that, but this behavior was not unknown at all, not unknown. This is not a new phenomenon. It may be new in our country because over t- over a few couple of centuries, we didn't have this, the same psychological and cultural factors at play that made this acceptable in some way or uh, as an alternative, but it isn't new behavior. The other lexicon says in his wonderful comparison of old age and youth, Aristotle characterized the, a few hundred years before Christ, characterized the angers of old men in this manner. You mean old men can be angry? Angry old men? Who would have thought? Their passions, thymoi, are keen but weak like fire and straw, quickly blazing up and is quickly extinguished. Origen, who is after Christ, arrived at the same conclusion. Thymos differs from orge in that thymos is anger, orge rising up in vapor and burning up, while orge is a yearning for revenge. Jerome, another Christian writer, said thymos is incipient anger, beginning anger and displeasure, fermenting in the mind. Orge, however, when thymos has subsided, is that which longs for revenge and desires to injure the one thought to have caused the harm. Both of these are condemned in this passage as ways of Christians acting. And they were common enough problems in the ancient world that here the apostle of all the things he could mention that should be put away, he mentions these two of all the things. And we see this all around us today. It's a resentment that destroys it. Now he says, clamor, krauge. It's an outcry, a a notification, a tumult or a grief. Clamor, here's what it is. I get to use a big word, which I just love. An onomatopoeic, onomatopoeic word, imitating the raven. What's an onomatopoeia? Did y'all have this in the third grade like I did? We had to spell, one of our spelling words in the first grade, as far as I remember. Onomatopoeia. Um, you know, all you young people, you have to know, people of my age. I mean, school, we were taking PhD courses in kindergarten back then best I can tell. I will say this, when I took one of my sons to the counselor's office at high school to graduate early, 
he looked up his ACT scores and SAT scores and so then I said, what am I? What, would, what am I? Because he said, I have, to, you have to get a book out to see how it corresponds to something else. He looked at, he said, what were you? I told him what my SAT, he looked at the thing, he says, you're not in the book. They stopped, they stopped this book long before your score came up. So, so, so Phil, I am smarter than you. Just so you know, we have living proof and this man is the proof in his book. It's a book this thick and they couldn't find my score so high in there. So no wonder you can't outsmart me. This is how you treat your children just to keep them under control once in a while. It's an onomatopoeic word, which an onomatopoeia is like zoom or zip or pow. It's something that imitates the sound of what's being done. And, and so the kroge, caw, 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 we say that in English. That's what this is. This is the calling of a crow or of a raven. It's a cry, and it denotes an outcry. Okay, let me let me boil it down to the audience here. Supposed to bring things. So, you know, uh, in the, there's a historical there's a historical drama called Finding Nemo. It's a bio, it's a it's a ecological biological film of Finding Nemo. And in that movie, this little fish flops up on the dock, and all of the all the seagulls go, my 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 my. That's a, that's an outcry, and they chase him around. Y'all didn't see that? It's like a Jacques Cousteau film. Look it up. Anyway, that's the clamor. The crowing, a a group of crows making all this noise and distracting everybody around them. And this is the thing that people get into. The tumult of controversy. And in the end, it all sounds like a bunch of crows making noise. Nobody's listening to anybody else. They're all just speaking for themselves, yelling over, trying to yell over the others. Is this not where we are oftentimes in society? Instead of a rational discussion back and forth, everything is taken personally. You disagree with me, you hate me, and then it gets worse from there, goes on and on. It's the outcry. He says this kind of clamor has no place in a Christian's life and it has no place in churches. If there's a disagreement, then we should figure out a way and talk about that disagreement peacefully and honorably and logically and, and contr- in a controlled fashion, not in a clamor or an outcry. And it gets worse and worse. And then there's evil speaking, blasphemia. We usually think, and usually it does mean an, uh, speaking against God. I don't think it means that in this case. It's more evil speaking in a general way, evil speaking about other people. It does mean does mean speaking against God, like in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew twelve, but but here it's slander, detraction, finding something bad to say about somebody else. Anything that could be said good about them, you have to come along and follow that with some insult or slander on that person's character or intellect or looks or whatever it may be. You can't just let it stand. As it is. You know, my father noticed this many years ago, not long after I first began preaching. He wasn't a Christian then. We were talking at lunch one day after church. He says, uh, I don't know what it was, he, where we were, maybe the former college lectures. He says, yeah, I noticed something about you preachers. I said, oh, this ought to be good. I didn't say that out loud. And he, he, he said, is there a lot of professional jealousy among you preachers? He said, I know what professional jealousy is in my work. 
But he says, I see it among preachers. He says, I can hardly ever hear one preacher say something about another preacher without them going, but, and adding something else that's negative or detraction from that. And I said, hmm, let me, and he's right. So often the case. And his point was, I can see that in my office at work where people who are worldly and immature and striving for position, striving for advantage over others in the hierarchy at work. I can see why they would always have to temper any compliment that somebody gave with something negative or slanders. He said he, didn't, wasn't under, he wasn't really understanding it among preachers and brethren, people in the church. And he's right about that. Very perceptive, and I think exactly right. So oftentimes, and I wait for it. Somebody gives me a compliment. What word am I waiting for when they're giving me a compliment? You know the word. But, okay, that's the word you're waiting for. Someone says something nice, you're waiting for the but to come in and smack you. And then what's the only thing you remember from that encounter? What comes after the word but is all that you remember. So it's a very destructive thing sometimes. We can't just let something good be. Let it sit there. And and if something negative needs to be said, at least frame it and put it in a way that can be useful to somebody, which we're getting to. But this is slander, detraction, speech injurious to another's good name, impious and reproachful speech, injurious to divine majesty of those who speak contemptuously of God or sacred things. And it includes that. But it's oftentimes blaspheming, evil speaking about somebody else. It, gossip and slander belong in this place. Malicious talk that's only intended to bring somebody to our speech, even if it's negative in the sense it's a criticism or a correction, admonition, needs to be framed in such a way that it can actually be of use to the person that we're giving it to. Not just throw something negative out like hurling a rock at them or a grenade and running away. It's supposed to be, make your speech such that you can still stand close even after you've said it. When you throw a grenade, you better throw it a long way or back up when you throw the grenade. And so people do that. They th- throw a grenade verbally and back up. Make your speech so that you can stay in the same vicinity and continue the discussion. Not going to blow up on everybody. Anyway, malice. Kakia. I think that's probably another onomatopoeia doesn't use it. But it's the badness, depravity, or actively malign- malignity. One is kind of subjective, how you feel uh, feel badly, and then the other one's what you do. It's wickedness, ill will, a desire to injure, depravity. And it's wickedness that is not ashamed to break laws. It'll go a long way. This kind of of kakia is pretty bad. This is a common word for bad, evil or badness in the New Testament. This kind of thing, and you know, when you meet an evil person, if if you have ever deal with them, you can kind of come to recognize what evil is. Not everybody is evil. Not every action that's wrong is evil. Evil has such a, such a self-interest in it that it is so destructive. And there's evil people in all professions, all walks of life, and, and uh, in churches. I can name them if you'd like me to. Some of them I've met. But basically what Whitefoot, who is a Greek scholar, says, the vicious character generally, a vicious character. And these people exist and call themselves Christians that are vicious Shouldn't be you. Shouldn't be you at work. Shouldn't be you in your home. That is vicious. Now then, go back to our chart real quickly, move along here. So he says here, 
you take these things, bitterness, wrath, clamor, anger, evil speaking. I think almost all these have to do with words. They have to do with what you say to a large degree. Which is, which is fundamentally how we interact with each other. With words. Fundamentally. And then words take you someplace else. But he says, instead of that, you're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So here are the words that are used. I, I spent most of my time developing this first one. We're to be kind to one another. So here's this general word kindness or be kind. It's an active phrasing. Kindness is the noun. It's what you're, it's the name of what's going on. But be kind is a command. It's an active thing that you do. This is word Christos. And here's what struck me when I looked this up. When I was listening to somebody the other day. We think of kindness as warm feelings towards someone. It says, the word means employed. That is, by implication, useful in manner or morals. Kindness is being useful. It is being employed in doing something towards somebody else. That's striking to me. But that's what kindness means in this Greek word here. Employed or useful in manner or morals. So much of our action, action toward other people is not pre-thought out. Our words are, as Jesus calls them, idle words without thought behind them. Idle or lazy words come out of our mouth. And our actions can be somewhat follow along with that. We don't even think to act and what people might need. We don't think of what's go- what I can do. And so, therefore, we're not actually kind. Having warm feelings for someone but doing nothing is what James is talking about in, in James chapter 2 when he said, I say to someone who's in need, uh, be warmed and filled. But I never give him anything needful for the body. He said, this isn't true faith. And it isn't kindness either. So it means that that which makes something better, that which is easy, goodness, graciousness, kindness, it means fit or fit for use, useful, another dictionary says. Didn't know this. And I think it's startling, and that's the main point I want you to get today if you don't get anything else. When you want to be kind to somebody, I want to ask you something. What are you doing for them? Or what did you do for them? And if we'll begin to think that way, when we feel the emotion of warmth or affection for someone, or sympathy or compassion, whatever emotions we're feeling toward a situation or person, if we will immediately begin to think, how can I be kind that is useful or fit, helpful in this situation, we'll go a long way to being a lot better Christians. Because that's what the word means, be kind. Virtuous, manageable, mild, pleasant, as opposed to harsh or sharp. And um, so it means benevolent. Uh, you can't be benevolent just because you say be warmed and filled. Benevolence implies an action is taking place of goodness. And this is what's missing from so much. The world talks about, you know, you hate me or hate speech and hate this and hate that. I hate somebody because I, I, I'm against what they say they believe in. And that isn't the definition of Bible hate either. Focused on the emotions of the situation, how people feel about things rather than what's being done. So there's some people that if you disagree with them about some cultural issue or some moral issue, it doesn't matter what you've done to help them. You're a hateful person and they try to push you away. Makes no sense. But they don't take your kindness toward them as any evidence of love. Of which it is. 
Now I want to show you an example of this while we have time. I want to read you. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Another striking case. You know, David the king, he wasn't king all the time. He, he was, he killed Goliath before he was king and King Saul was the king of Israel. And, and because David was so praised, King Saul and he became rivals. Saul was the one who initiated and continued this rivalry, tried to kill David many times. But David in the interaction he had, because he was in Saul's palace a lot this time, he made friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And the Bible says about them, that they loved each other as one soul loves another. They were very, very deep friends, and they cared about one another. Now, this is often portrayed by gay activists as a homosexual relationship, which David was odd because he has all these wives who we condemned him for and was looking at women taking baths on the top of buildings and getting in trouble for it. Uh, it's a strange, it's just a twisting of the Scripture. But it's possible for two men to be as brothers. I've got a couple of men that I've known over my lifetime that... I consider them to be just like my brothers to me. Not the same exact, but, but we care about each other, I think. But David loved Jonathan. Well, eventually, Jonathan was killed in battle. King Saul, the, the, the king, and his son were both killed. Devastated David. Well, years later, when David then ascends to the throne in reality, he said in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 9, Is there anyone still who is left of the house of Saul? as his enemy, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Here's the word in Hebrew now. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, not the one on NCIS, but that's Ziba anyway. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. And so the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? that I may show kindness, the kindness of God. Notice that he says, I want to show to this one who's left, anyone who's left, the kindness of God toward him. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Got to bring those cripples up, you know, like me. And that's why I like this story. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, what had happened here was when Saul's house was attacked, the ser- one of the servants that was taking care of this boy, he was five years old when his father was killed, when Jonathan was killed. He was five years old. And one of the servants ran out of the house with him to protect him and run away from the battle, and she dropped him and crippled him, broke his feet, ankles. They don't have orthopedic surgeons back then. He became crippled, couldn't walk. And she, they took care of this young man. Now he's a grown man. And David comes doesn't know this person and says, is there anybody in, I want to show kindness to Jonathan, anybody I can show kindness to. And so in any, in the event, they send for this young man. So David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir in verse six. It says, now when Mephibosheth, that's the son, that's the young man, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul had come to David. He fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. So David's, said to him, do not fear. You don't have to bow down like I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. Just the opposite. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. When I was first starting to preach, for when Judy and I first were married, I was trying to raise some money so I could preach at a church in Boca Raton. 
and I called her. I didn't know it. I didn't have any real people that were anybody to speak for me much. And I called, somebody said, well, call this old man B.G. Hope up in Kentucky. He's a nice man. He's a preacher and elder. So I called him, told him who I was, and uh, he didn't know me. Man, I said, I need some help to preach. Just get started preaching. Well, son, we support a lot of preachers, and I just don't know what we can do to help you. Wish you well and all this. And so I got to talk just a little bit more. And I told him about, I said, I mentioned, well, I said, I'm the only one in my family that's a preacher except my great uncle, who I don't know real well. But I said, his name is, he said, what's your uncle's name? He's an old preacher. He's really in his 80s. Well, R.E. Henson is his name. He said, you mean the R.E. Henson from Freed Harmon College? I said, yeah, that's my great uncle. And all of a sudden, the entire conversation changed. He said, that man taught me more about the Bible than anybody ever met in my whole life. And he was kind to me when I was young. Next thing you know, I got support from that church. Now, what the man did, he didn't just say to me, well, isn't that nice? Your great uncle's a great guy. He helped me out. Uh, see you later. He actually showed kindness to me and to Judy by saying, not only do I love your uncle for what he did, even though I don't know you at all, I'm going to give you kindness. That's what he did. This is what happened here. Only a much bigger situation. And you will eat bread at my, I will restore all the land of you saw your grandfather and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And he says, what, what, who is your servant? What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? I'm useless to everybody around me. This is what he feels like when you're crippled. I'm useless to everybody, especially in that day and age. Why are you doing this for me? Because of your father, that's who. So sometimes the good that we do doesn't come back to us. It comes back a generation or two later to other people. Don't ever overlook doing, don't ever not do good, do good always, every time, because that good will come back in some form to someone that you may know or someone that you don't know later. No, ever heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished? Uh, that's my life. But on the other side of the coin is, no good deed goes unnoticed by the Lord at all. And so they told him to work the land, this servant, and so he, he did that. And, and so, According to all my king has commanded his servant, so I will do. And he will eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Got to bring that up again. No, it means he didn't have any other way to take care of himself. So now he's not just poor, he's eating at the king's table. Because someone was kind to him. Not just feeling sorry for him. Not just liking his grandfather, his father, but he did something active for him. And, and so, I don't have this verse up here. This is Titus 3. For we ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Christ saved us. We'll skip the next part of that verse through verse 6. God did something for us. His kindness was not just feeling warm about human beings. He sent his son. That's the very definition of kindness. You be this way. Like father, like son. Now then the other word here quickly, tenderhearted. You, I just can't leave this out here hanging. This is too good. Yushplopnos. I like that word. Sounds like some of the Hungarian dishes my dad served me. <laughs> Yushplopnos, from good and bowels. 
This is to have good bowel. Literally, look it up in the Greek dictionary. I looked it up when I saw this the other day. I went, oh, this is too good to leave there. i got to preach a sermon on you splontinos. I knew this, but then it just popped up. Good bowels. What in the world? You ever heard Paul, if you read the King James in Colossians 3, it says having bowels of compassion. Now, the real part about this is that the Bible teaches that compassion moves you to do things. So here's bowels moving in the Bible. And that's exactly what this is about. It is the compassion, the kindness moving you to act. That's the very idea. It means tender-hearted in our way of looking at it, or pitiful or full of pity. Having pity. Pitiful to us means, oh, that's a a pitiful excuse for a dog. But pitiful really means full of pity or compassion towards some tender-hearted. So the bowels were regarded as a seat of more violent passions, such as anger and love. Remember this anger we talked about? But by the Hebrews, they were regarded as the seat of the tenderer affections. Well, where do you feel these things? You feel them in your gut. Don't we say that? We get a gut feeling? We're using the same language. And really, the word comes from the word for spleen. The splonknos. You means good. Splonknos means a word like spleen. Of the, especially kindness, benevolence, compassion. Hence, our heart, tender mercies, affections, and it's kind of related. So when you combine them together, the new word means an inward feeling of delight and this deep desire that moves someone to do something for someone else. Peter told husbands and wives to have this tender-heartedness toward each other. He's actually throwing them to feel deeply for each other and to put actions to those emotions. Compassion, the lexicographer says, always produces action. Now then, one more real quick. Forgive. This is not the word for forgiving a sin like sending it away. This is karitsomai. This is to grant a favor, gratuitous kindness. To do something pleasant. Here it is again. To do something pleasant or agreeable to one. To do a favor to gratify, to show, to be kind, there's the word again, and to show benevolence. So he's saying the same thing again. Therefore, he says, Ephesians 4, therefore, or this should be 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. All right, sorry we got rushed at the end there. I appreciate you listening today. But I hope you'll see that the main point of this is all the good feelings you have don't amount to anything until you do something about it toward each other. Your speech needs to turn away from the clamor and wrath and anger toward that which is kind and useful. And kindness is being useful to other people. So how can you be useful to those around you that you know, however big or little it may be? We appreciate your your, uh, your listening to these things. And now we're going to close our assembly with a song number six. Number 125, Do You Know My Jesus, number 125, which is an invitation to you. If you're not a Christian and become one today, come to the front row. We'll take your confession of, of your belief in Christ and we'll baptize you into Christ for the remission of your sins this very hour. Or if you're already a Christian, perhaps you need to be us to pray with you about a wrong or, forgive, or some forgiveness. Or perhaps you need uh, uh, us to pray with you about something that's troubling you. If that's the case, you come right down here to the front. Let's stand and sing.